0: A lot of the tools that we're using today to combat this coronavirus crisis were cooked up in 2008 during the great financial crisis, but now they're on steroids. They've completely blown up to magnitudes that are unprecedented.
1: Hello there from New York City. How are you? What a week. So what started as a seed planted by Michael Peterson in El Zonte has led to the country becoming the first to make Bitcoin legal tender requiring all economic agents to accept Bitcoin. This has been a truly historic week. And I personally want to congratulate Michael, but also Jack Mallers and the El Salvadorian government for what has been, well, how do you even comprehend what it's been? But it's going to be a bright future, especially for the people of El Salvador. An economic freedom with Bitcoin, anyway. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with William Elman and Greg Mercer, where we're going to be discussing central banks, bonds, and inflation. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors, and today we kick off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin and I've been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you're an Android user, you can connect that to your Nano S so you can manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you wanna find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up we have is Gemini, the only place I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling. I'm only buying. And I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing all through one clear attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And I also want to welcome my new sponsor, Revolut, to the podcast. Now, as many of you know, Lloyd's TSB, my bank of 25 years, closed down all my accounts recently. They don't like Bitcoin. Enter Revolut, which made it very easy for me to create an account. And more importantly, they do like Bitcoin, making it easy for you to transfer to exchanges. And now Revolut are offering $20 or £20 to all new customers that complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can create a card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get that cash in your pocket. But I would recommend you convert it straight to Bitcoin. This is a new relationship and I'm working with the Revolut team to help them build a bank which is Bitcoin friendly. There is a lot to navigate, but we will get this. If you want to find out more, then please head over to Revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD. And of course, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I've been a customer of their interest accounts for nearly two years now, letting my Bitcoin work for me. Also with BlockFi, you can take out a Bitcoin-backed loan, so you can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And you can also now register for a BlockFi credit card which launches imminently offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you are interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to blockfi.com, which is B L O C K F I.com. Okay, onto the show, and this is a fascinating one. For those of you like me who struggle to understand how the economy works sometimes, I've got a couple of guys on, are going to explain a few things, a few things that some of us might find tricky. So earlier this year we saw bond yields rise quite significantly. And I heard all sorts of things about how this was a sign of income and inflation, but this was a bullish sign for Bitcoin. So I started digging into this, and I've discussed it a few times with Lynn Alden and Greg Foss, so go and check those shows out. But to be honest, it's not something I knew about much before this. And while I was doing my research, William reached out to me and shared an article that he had written about why we should care about these yield rises. It was a really well-written article. The best I'd seen at explaining how bonds work so I wanted to get him on the show. I said, come on, come on, come and explain these things to the listeners. And he recommended his friend, Greg Mercer, joined us to shed some light on a few of these more tricky subjects. So it's a really interesting show. I think you're going to enjoy it. But if you have any questions or feedback, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. If you do reach out to me, I will reply. But just don't send me any weird shit. All right, on to the show. William, how are you doing, mate? Doing good. How are you, Peter? I'm good, thank you. Greg, are you well? Doing great. Thanks for having us on. Right. Well, first, uh, let's do the confession that I'm a horrible host. <laughs> and I think like two, three times I've put this back. I'm so sorry. Do you know One of the good things about it, I'm glad now it's coming after my interview with Eric Weinstein, because I think it's going to be uh, mildly relevant to the conversation I had with him, especially with regards to CPI. Uh, but I'm glad to do it. Uh, William, do you want to just introduce, introduce yourself, uh, give people the background to why we're talking? Sure thing. So I'm a
2: law student at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. I'm studying business and finance law. And my foray into Bitcoin, well, I should say both Greg and I heard about Bitcoin probably in 2011 or 12. We have a mutual friend who's quite eclectic and wanted to get us mining. And I had no idea what he was talking about and just shelved the idea and You know, I periodically saw Bitcoin in the news and didn't really think much of it. And then COVID rolls around. It's maybe May or June of 2020. You know, there's a global health pandemic. The U.S. government has just passed a fiscal stimulus package of $3 trillion, and the world no longer makes sense to me. And this Bitcoin thing has just not gone away. It just keeps coming back. And so I decided to, to educate myself about it. Um, and now I'm pretty, pretty deep in the world of Bitcoin. Um, I think it's a fascinating way to, to see the world through. And um, earlier this year, there was a lot of talk around the bond markets and bond yields. And I kind of followed it, but I'll admit it, it didn't, I didn't totally get it. And so I, I thought I'd, I'd educate myself and, and write an article about it. Uh, I did. I shared that with, with Peter. We can, I suppose we can link the show, uh, in the, or, excuse me, the article in the show notes. And mm-hmm. uh, Peter invited, invited me on the show to, to chat more about bonds and, and central banking and, and in context of Bitcoin.
1: But you said we need to bring this other guy, Greg, on.
2: Yeah, so <laughs> Greg Mercer is a good friend of mine. Became friends, ironically, in Econ 101 in college, uh, where I earned a middling grade and did not continue any farther. Um, but Greg has really taken, uh, taken the path professionally. Greg, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do?
0: Sure, yeah. I'm Greg Mercer. Uh, thanks again, Peter, for having us on the show. I've really Are been looking welcome. forward to speaking with you. Um, yeah, so I, I am a deputy director at a small think tank in Washington, D.C., Uh, that really works on international economic cooperation, global development, and and global trade. And one of the unique things that this position has provided me is kind of a a direct line into mainstream economic thinking and policymaking circles. And Willie, uh, earlier this year, had kind of dragged me into the Bitcoin world. Uh, And one of the things that's been fascinating for me is Kind of having the opportunity to have a foot in both camps, so to speak, uh, and seeing where there's disagreement, seeing where there's you know, you know, opportunities for agreement. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And yeah, I'm looking forward to to getting into some of these issues and and hopefully sharing some of the perspective that I've developed over my career here in DC. So, Greg, big important question: How fucked are we?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a Willie and I were talking about this before coming on the show. It's a it's a crazy time right now, dude. You know, we were listing the number of ways in which traditional macroeconomic thinking has been thrown out the window in the last ten months, Uh, and so it's a crazy time. And and you know, it's 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 a hard time to predict what's going to happen. There's a lot of variables, so yeah, you know, I I don't know that I have any answers here. I will add
2: that when I'm when I'm in my doomsday mode and thinking that the global financial system is on the verge of collapse, I, I go to Greg for reassurance, and he usually calms me down.
1: Ah, well, that's good that you have it. Well, listen, I've got both of you here. Uh, I recently did an interview with Eric Weinstein, and we cover. I keep calling him Weinstein, and I don't know why. But apologies for that, Eric. But Eric Weinstein. Uh, we had a. Quite a large section of that interview was discussing inflation and uh, CPI rates, and uh, his ideas that we uh, need to challenge these people. A lot of stuff in there I didn't understand. I I failed at what my normal duty is, which is to get a smart person to explain things that I can understand it, though everyone can understand it. And I I failed that time, Uh, but I did have one yeah one question from that. Uh, you'll be able to certainly answer this, Greg. I, I don't know if William wants to take it, but he kept referring to neoclassical economics, okay? I was sat in the interview going, well, what, what the hell is that? So what is neoclassical economics?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take a first crack at it, and, and Willie, you know, jump in as well. Um, I mean, it, in my view, neoclassical economics is essentially the economics that you learn in Econ 101, so this is the class that William and I sat in together in college. and it's based fundamentally on a series of models. The simplest of those models is, is supply and demand, um, that you know a price is reached in a marketplace based on fluctuations in supply and fluctuations in demand. So I think that's the most simple example of one of those models. but you know the, 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 the real challenge with neoclassical economics is that it's taught in the schools it's you know if you have if you've taken one course in economics, that's what you learn. But then when you get out into the real world, start digging into the data and start thing seeing how things actually work, you find that a lot of these models don't hold up in practice. you know there's there's endless examples of that and and I think that's you know it's it's a shame that that the introduction that most people have to economics is is in that fashion and is in a way that doesn't necessarily help you understand the world any better.
1: Well, so I I did economics at A-level at school, um, but we're talking, Jesus, I'm such an old man now. 20, <laughs> 20, 24 years ago, I finished my A-levels. I got a C in economics. Uh, and I, I, only got, I probably should have got a D, but I cheated in one of the tests, so I think I raised my mark up a bit. But like I studied it, we had a micro class, a microeconomics and macroeconomics class. Uh, and the one thing that uh, I remember from it, from speaking to Bitcoiners, is that we studied Keynesian economics, which now apparently all needs thrown out the window. It's all bullshit. Uh, I don't remember a lot of it, but uh, when you talk about supply and demands and e- e- Econ 101, it makes me think of the Ray Dalio video, How Markets Work, which I thought is, you know, it's an excellent video. But I've also since listened to the audiobook of Economics in One Lesson. Um, so one of the things... Uh, I'm trying to understand with neoclassical economics, is this free market economics or is this the kind of economics where we have interference from the state? Because it feels to me that the biggest problem we have with economics now is state interference.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it, if and, and Willie, you know, feel free to jump in, in here as well. But um, in if, if I'm understanding neoclassical economics correctly, that, that's really the economics of the free market. Um, it's not until later in the economics profession that the role of the state in managing economic cycles, uh, in in propping up aggregate demand in cases of a recession, it's not until later in in the in the history of economics that that comes in. Um, so yeah, when you talk about, you know, when you talk about neoclassical economics, those models often don't assume a role for government.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, those neoclassical economics is is as Greg mentioned, those are like kind of the the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of how an economy in theory would work. Basic concepts like supply and demand. When the Great Depression happened, the the governmental response under the Hoover administration was largely based in neoclassical thinking and was roundly criticized for being inadequate. And that that was really the moment where Keynesian economics stepped in and shined. And, you know, I think mainstream economic thinking is that Keynesia's, Keynesian economics, which prescribes a, an active role for the state, that that was responsible in large part, that and World War II, for pulling the U.S. out of the Great Depression. And specifically, the government acting as a stimulant or a stimulator of government, excuse me, of economic activity through spending.
1: Right. But Bitcoiners, who I talk to, regularly criticize Keynesian economics because uh, the, the state interference makes markets less efficient and it creates these artificial uh, boom and busts. And we seem to be in this scenario where we're not allowing a bust to happen. And in doing so, we are kicking the can down the road and, and eventually going to uh, see an almighty crash, an, an almighty depression. Um, so where are you with that? I'll I'll take a first
2: stab at that. I mean, what you're describing is very much, this is the the anti-fragile argument, right? This is the Talebian anti-fragile argument that if you don't let the small wildfires run and clear out the the underbrush, that when it finally happens, it's going to be far worse. And I do think there is some truth to that. Um, The problem is we're not going to know until we know right? I mean, it's like, I think the Austrians, I think it was, I want to say it was Caitlin Long, said something to the effect of, the Austrians are wrong until they're right. And I think that's the challenge is that, I think that Bitcoiners maybe tend to underestimate the power and dexterity of the tools that the Federal Reserve has at its disposal. And I, I would argue that its response has been largely successful. But the question is, at the expense of what, right? And are we borrowing from the future? Are we borrowing from decades forward to prevent um, short-term pain? And I mean that, yeah, I, there, there is no answer. And this, this is the debate. Greg, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right on. We're, we're living through a moment where government intervention into the, into the business cycle, into the economic cycle, is, is larger than it's ever been in history. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the tools that we're using today to combat this coronavirus crisis were cooked up in 2008 during the great financial crisis, but now they're on steroids. They've completely blown up to magnitudes that are unprecedented. Um, is this gonna come back to haunt us? Uh, In the long term, it's it's certainly possible. In the short term, though, I I think that that um, the the application of these tools has helped a lot of people. So you know, we we might be trading uh, you know the reduction of pain in the short term for more pain in the future. Um, But I think that you know, there's no doubt that that using some of these some of the emergency
1: tools that we've used this crisis has has really helped a lot of people. See, this is where it gets confusing because. Have the, whilst these tools may have helped a lot of people, have they also harmed a lot of people? Are these new tools sticking plasters for the for the damage that these people have also caused? Um, and who, who like who's really who really has benefited? Looking at the wealth gap and the cost of living, I uh, love that beautiful website. My producer Ben Prentice uh, is a co-contributor. WTF Happened 1971? Sometimes I I wonder, sometimes you just get confused with it all. I mean, certainly stimulus packages during the coronavirus in the UK, uh, they've helped businesses stay afloat uh, whilst we've been in lockdowns. And we'll avoid the argument whether lockdowns are right or wrong at the moment. Let's just talk about the economic response. But again, are they just sticking plasters over problems that they were created themselves? Should markets ultimately be completely free without interference from the state?
2: So, this is a
1: difference of
2: their competing visions here. Mm. Free market vision is that absent the state, markets just work, right? It's kind of this Adam and Eve utopia, if you will, where, where markets are self-regulating, they're self-correcting, and, and that the source of economic crises is government intervention. The Keynesians would say, no, it's, there is in, inherent vol- volatility to free markets. And when you let markets run wild without regulation, you get things like the Depression. And that actually necessitates government intervention. Um, so, you know, I don't, <laughs> I certainly don't have a definitive answer to your question. But the reality is that government intervention has costs. Nothing is free. And the immense amount of fiscal stimulus that's been injected into the economy has propped up certain asset classes, and that benefits certain groups of people, for sure. It might be keeping poor people afloat, just hanging on, but it also might be disproportionately helping people who already have assets, namely stocks and real estate. And so, yeah, I I personally do think that there is a strong case to be made that the fiscal response has contributed to inequality, even while it's helped throw a lifeline to some of the most vulnerable people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it referred to as like uh, like a drug addiction.
2: Yeah.
1: We keep feeding the addiction, but every time we feed it, you know, we need more of the drug uh, because our tolerance is increasing. Yeah. And eventually, you know, and as somebody who was an addict, I, I understand this uh, analogy. Um but at some point, the, we are putting off a crash. You cannot uh, keep printing money continuously, trillions and trillions of dollars, without either leading to some form of mass, or e- either or hyperinflation, or just creating a massive wealth gap and creating and, and making life unaffordable for people. I mean, the cost of living in the US now, uh, you know, compared to the average salary, is is getting ridiculous. We yeah, you know, people in the middle classes have been hugely squeezed. Uh, so I mean, I, I struggle with it all. Okay, well, listen, look, let's let's talk about CPI because this came up with actually this came up in an argument the other day at the I was at the uh, um, Logan no yeah Logan Paul Mayweather fight. Some dude never met before was uh, in the suite we were in, and we started debating Bitcoin with him. And you know, one of the good reasons is prevention against inflation. And this dude was like, look, there is hardly any inflation. Check out the CPI numbers. You know, it's relatively low. And I was like, well, are the CPI figures a, tr- a fair reflection on inflation? Or are they a suitable measure of inflation for the government to justify money printing? Because I know certain things are getting more expensive. Although they're above the, say, 2%, uh, the rising gas price, well, energy prices. Uh, and I know part of that can be blamed as a, as a, as a supply shock following... Uh, coming out of the coronavirus situation, but also house prices are, you know, if you go to Austin, they're up, what, 30% in a year? So is the CPI measure fair? And, and can you ever get to a, a truly fair uh, measure of inflation? Because everything's relative, right? If, you know, you, you might be in a certain place, a certain state where rents haven't gone up or house prices haven't gone up in other places they've gone up massively. Like, can you even get a fair measure of inflation?
0: I would I would respond to that in, in a couple ways. Um, the first is that I, I think you're right, and and I should preface this by saying'm I'm, I'm no expert in CPI. Uh, you know, if if you want to talk to the economists at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they can give you the full breakdown on what's in there and what's not. But I'm, that, that's not me. Um, but you know I, I would say that I, th- I think you're right that it's a relatively blunt instrument, right? it's It's trying to capture, the purchases that an average consumer is making um, across a country that's, that's enormously diverse. So trying to boil all of that data, all of that information down to one measurement uh, probably is a, a blunt tool. You know, but I don't think that makes it without value. Um, you know, it's, it, it gives you kind of a snapshot of where inflation and where prices are going. And even if that's not a perfect snapshot, at least it, at least it communicates something. That would be that would be one thing that I would say. The other is that, you know, the the the, and, and, and maybe this is where we can take the conversation from here, perhaps. But mm-hmm. the the causes of inflation are diverse, right? You mentioned the supply stuff. You mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, kind of money printing or, or monetary expansion, but those aren't the only causes. Um, there are other causes, and it's about the interplay of those different causes that really leads to you know where inflation is going so you know it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated issue and 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 I, I think to some degree you're right that boiling it down to one number in CPI is probably oversimplifying things if I might
2: add to that I mean just to start when you say inflation, there's different kinds and Peter, you already narrowed it to CPI, which is an attempt to capture consumer goods, right? And that doesn't—that doesn't speak to inflation we might see in the stock market, for example, or just the inflation in the money supply itself. Um, I think it's particularly difficult to capture some kind of average person in 2021 because we live in an increasingly uh, diverse society where, I mean, for example, Greg and I live in the same city, kind of we're a similar age, similar life circumstances. He shops at a different grocery store than I do. How do you capture the, the increase in the price of meat at his grocery store versus mine? You know, 50 years ago, people may have bought shoes at the same shoe store. But now I go online and I seek out, you know, shoes that are They retail for $100, and I buy them for $30 on discount. How does CPI capture that? I I don't know. Um, What I do strongly reject is the the bad faith argument. Um, I I am aware that in in the Bitcoin circles, there's there's, there's a, a thread that says that CPI is kind of fudged or it's manipulated by the government to justify its own ends, and... I mean, I've dug into the CPI reports, um, and that's actually included in that in the slide deck that we shared with you, Peter, at the end mm-hmm. there. And I mean, they lay it all out there; all the data is there, and I don't think there's some black box where they're cooking up the numbers. Uh, I really, I really don't. I think we can have honest arguments about the choices they make in in coming up with that, you know, in methodologically, but. I think government is way too complicated, dysfunctional, and decentralized to organize that level of kind of conspiratorial economic
1: planning. Right. Okay. I think, uh, I think some Bitcoiners will disagree with you there. I think they'll be like, no. Well, hey, I'm, I'd, love to, <laughs> I, I'd love any evidence.
2: I mean, I'd be interested in seeing it. But All right. So, Greg,
1: talk to me about these other forms of inflation you highlighted. Other forms of inflation, well, causes.
0: Yeah, so I, I, you know, when I think of, and and this might be a bit of a, a bit of a kind of textbook answer, but but in my view, it's it's right on. There's really there's really three big buckets. So one of which, and I and I know you've talked to folks on the show about this in the past, uh, is supply issues. Right. It's mm-hmm. you know the the fact that all the sawmills shut down is a direct contributor to the increase in lumber prices. Um, So those supply bottlenecks are essential to understand. The housing example that Willie mentioned is a key example of this, right? Strict regulations about building homes in the United States, strict zoning laws that prevent construction directly contribute to supply bottlenecks that lead to increased prices. Washington DC, where I live, is a great example of this. There's, There's very strict rules about where you can build residential housing, uh, how high you can build residential buildings. Uh, and as a result, you know, we've seen prices go through the roof here in D.C. Um, so supply is is definitely one critical
1: factor. Um, and the thing we should say there is because, you know, for example, there was uh, the big jump in lumber prices this year. But that wasn't to do with an increase in the uh, money supply. That was to do with sawmills closing down and there being a supply bottleneck. But as Bitcoiners... I'll say I don't want to say we. Some bitcoiners may tweet out, you know, lumber prices and say there is no inflation and its lumber's up four hundred percent, but that's a supply bottleneck that actually hasn't got anything to do with an increase in the M two money supply. Yep, exactly right. And and you know this is, I think that it's really important
0: that um, we all recognize the unique circumstances we're in. We just for the first time in history turned a modern developed economy off. For a year, and then tried to turn it back on, and that's going to come with some really strange implications. Some of which are going to be supply bottlenecks, um, and so that that's a very real, you know, consideration when we're looking at these CPI numbers. Um, the other important factor that that uh, isn't included in kind of the the money printing di- discussion is inflation expectations. Right? Um, I think there's a very strong argument that at the end of the day, inflation is fundamentally a social and psychological phenomenon and not one that has to do with mechanical relationships between an increase in M2 and, and a rise in inflation. Um, and, and, you know, one good piece of data that came out recently, the University of Michigan did a study where they surveyed consumers and then, and then looked at kind of market-based, um, you know, determinations of, of future inflation. And they saw that both on the consumer, consumer survey side as well as on the market-based side, both of those groups were seeing less than 3% inflation on average over the following five years. So to me, that suggests really importantly that inflation expectations haven't become dislodged. Despite what we're seeing in CPI, despite the massive fiscal stimulus, it's not as if consumers and and others, others in the economy are predicting runaway inflation. And so long as businesses aren't predicting runaway inflation, they're probably not going to raise prices. So that, that kind of, those expectations and those psychological factors are really,
1: really essential. We are, though, seeing a lot of people uh, highlight increases in costs. Um, so one of my good friends, I have mentioned this on the show a couple of times, he's a plumber. And he said he's having to raise his prices because his raw material prices are going up. Uh and I'm not sure how much that is a supply bottleneck. It seems to me that there is also this wave that that's hitting now where everything is going up in price. It does feel like that, but there isn't this wave of increase in salaries. It's, can we identify where this is coming from? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I mean,
0: here in the United States, there's obviously a, a massive debate going on right now about you know, what exactly is happening in the labor market, and particularly what the impact of the unemployment insurance programs has had on the labor market. Um, I think the kind of traditional Republican or conservative response to this question would be that generous unemployment benefits that were offered by the states and subsidized by the federal government are keeping people out of the labor force. And, And I think there might be some truth to that. But at the same time, it seems quite clear to me that you know, these low quality, low wage jobs are going to have to raise their wages to attract workers, at least in the short term. Um, and it will be interesting to see. I mean, that's if, if wages start going up, it'll be interesting to see how that feeds on down the line into price inflation on consumer goods.
2: Yeah. So the most recent round of, of economic data d- did show strong wage growth over the last few months. But, you know, is is that a sign that the labor market's totally healed? No, it's much more likely it's that there's still millions of people who are sitting on the sidelines because they're taking care of kids who cannot go to school because they're all shut down. They might still have some lingering concerns about uh, safety uh, with with COVID. And we have an artificially restricted labor market because so many people are sitting on the sidelines. But eventually they're going to come back in. So is that, is that wage growth that we've seen over the last few months um, a secular sign of some kind of structural change? Or is it just us working out the kinks as we adapt, as, as we transition to some degree of normalcy? And I think it's probably the latter.
1: Next up, I talked to William and Greg more about central banking, inflation, and bonds. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, today we're going to kick off with sportsbet.io. And we did it. As you know, I persuaded them to give away a Lambo at Bitcoin 2021, and we did it. But the couple who won it decided not to take the car. They took the Bitcoin instead. They got $250,000 worth of Bitcoin. And the coolest thing about this story is, I mean, I'm getting even closer now, but at the point of winning, they were two weeks away from getting married. So what an awesome wedding present for these guys. And thanks to the team at sportsbet.io for doing this. Now with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They have football, tennis, American sports, motorsports. They even cover esports. Everything you could possibly think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, please do head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot IO forward slash promotions. Next up we have Excess Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when Exodus reached out, I spent some time playing with the app and they crushed the experience. I'm so happy to recommend it to my friends and family because Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks those addresses for errors. So if you wanna find out more, Head over to Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And lastly today, but never least, are my friends over at Casa, the safest way for storing your Bitcoin. Forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because a multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you can distribute into different locations. And that's going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you've got questions about this, you can reach out to me over email or DM me on Twitter. I am a CASA customer. I am happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. All right, well, we're half an hour in and we haven't actually touched on the subject that we originally were going to talk about, <laughs> which is really interesting. Okay, so we originally were going to talk about uh, bond yields and yield curves because that was a subject that came up for me a couple of times. Greg Foss, I discussed it with him, and Lynn Alden. And I think people listening to the show could see my brain ticking and trying to figure it out, trying to understand this. Because when, when it was first explained to me uh, that yield, when yield rates going up was a bad sign, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Surely this is a good sign. that you know, Yields are going to be paying a better return. This, this is awesome. But what I didn't understand is what that meant for the repricing of bonds in the market because it's a constant liquid market. I know I've touched this before and I've had it explained before and I've done my best, but there will be some people who miss those shows or are new to the shows. So I think it's a really interesting topic to get into. So we're going to go... Basics, William. Do you want to just start with explaining uh, what a treasury bond is, how it works, what the how the market uh, uh, trades these? Absolutely. So let's just start with what a bond is before we
2: even get into mm-hmm. the treasury bond. So a bond is a loan. It's an IOU. If you have some extra money sitting around, you can own by purchasing stock in a company, or you can loan by lending that money um, to a borrower. So a bond, it's a fixed loan. It's it's what we think of when we think of a loan. There's a principal amount. There's a, a maturity date. Let's say ten years from now uh, is when the bond will be repaid. Uh, and there's annual interest. Um, a treasury bond is that issued by the U.S. Department of the Treasury. That is the government agency that is responsible for managing the U.S. government's finances. It is not the bank. It is not the Federal Reserve. And that's, it's very important to keep those two institutions distinct. Uh, the U.S. Treasury is the money manager. So when you pay your taxes, like the IRS is a wing of the U.S. Treasury. When you get your stimulus checks in the mail from the government, that's from the U.S. Treasury. So the U.S. government issues bonds to fund government spending, whether it's Medicare, military, you name it. The government essentially continually runs a deficit, and so it needs to borrow money. Um, It cannot just totally create that money out of thin air. And so it it issues bonds. Uh, Those bonds are issued on what's called the primary auction market, and they can be purchased by... Private actors, like institutions, they can be purchased by individuals. Uh, They can even be purchased by other governments. So I actually, in preparation for this show, I actually bought a U.S. Treasury (laughs) directly. You did? And it's, yeah, I'm showing it on video (laughs) here. But it's just just a printout because it's not a real thing. It's just a, but if you go to treasurydirect.gov or Mm treasurydirect.com, just Google it. You can actually create an account and buy a U.S. Treasury bond. So I, I bought one. It was like $100.
1: And I think it was... Uh, that is cool. I didn't, I didn't know any of us could just go and do that. You can buy a bond.
2: That's, what did, yeah, what, and I'm what, looking what, for what, it here, and what, I, I can't find the details. But <laughs> Over what year? What period? What, is it a 10-year bond? I bought a 10-year bond. And at that time, I think it was about 1.6%.
1: So you will get uh, hundred and one dollars sixty-seven cents back in ten years. I will get a dollar sixty per year. That's the
2: interest. Oh, per year. So I will get one dollar okay. and sixty cents per year, and then okay. at the ex- and at the end of ten years, I will get my hundred dollar principal back in full. So, so you're going until- to get about
1: hundred and eleven dollars, hundred and twelve dollars, give or take. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Uh So, what will be interesting is if you get the same purchasing power for $111.60 in 10 years as you get for $100 now. I have a feeling you won't. I think you will get less coffee at Starbucks. I think you'll get less cheeseburgers at McDonald's. You certainly can buy less of a house. It seems like a shit deal.
2: I would agree with you that. In real terms, I'm going to lose money with that investment mm-hmm. because, because inflation in, in goods and services will outpace that 1.6% annual interest. I'm fairly confident of that. However, bonds are extremely safe. So if you are a bank or a large institution and you have hundreds of millions of dollars to allocate and you don't want to put it into Tesla, or Bitcoin, you could purchase U.S. Treasury bonds. U.S. Treasury bonds are called, Peter, you've probably heard this term thrown around, the risk-free rate of return. Mm -hmm. And and the reason it's called the risk-free rate of return is because the U.S. government is considered essentially the perfect creditor. They're never going to go bankrupt. They've never defaulted. It's the largest economy in the world, or at least I think it still is, the global superpower. And those bonds are, quote, backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you, you're only earning, you know, maybe 1% or 2% annual interest on a bond, but there's virtually no risk, at least today.
1: And it's, the rate is going to be better than the interest you get in a bank. So your options are leave it in a bank and make less money. Uh, take out the treasury bond and you know, be, have a guaranteed nominal rate over 10 years. Do you get that interest every year or do you get it as one lump sum at the end? So it's typically paid semi-annually every six
2: months. Semi-annual. That's just kind yeah, of the standard. So you're going to get about
1: 80 cents every six months. Correct. Dude. It so
2: I think it might be helpful to actually just walk through another example here with some numbers, um, because I know we did want to talk about yields. Mm. You know, what is a bond yield? What is bond yield going up and down? What does that actually mean? So, Peter, would you be open to just kind of doing a, a walkthrough do of, a, of an example here where I have a bond that I'm interested in selling you? Yeah, just do it. Okay. So... Let's say I purchase a bond for $100. That's called the principal or par value. I give the US Treasury, the US government $100. They give me this piece of paper, this bond in return. Let's say it's let's just say nice round number. It's yielding 2% per year. So $2 interest I'm earning. And it's a it's a 20-year bond. So at the end of the 20 years I'll get my principal of $100 back. All good so far? hmm Okay. So now, let's say a year or two goes by, and the new treasury bonds that are being issued by the government are generating a higher yield. Let's say 3%. I want to get rid of my bond. I want to sell it to you, Peter. Are you going to buy it for that same $100, knowing that you could get a higher interest rate from If you were to buy it directly from the treasury? Of course not. So I've got a bond that yields 2%, and you could buy a, a bond that yields 3% elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You're going to offer me less for that bond, right? So even though I paid $100 for it, let's say I sell it to you for just $70. That bond is still earning $2 in annual interest because the, the 2% of 100 is $2. And so your yield, Peter, since you bought it for $70, your yield is going to be higher. It's specifically going to be 2.9% because you're going to get $2 every year in interest on a $70 purchase. And that right there is how yields change over
1: time. But you're, to sell it to me, you're sacrificing your principal.
2: Right. Because who knows, maybe I need that cash right now. Mm-hmm. I'm stra- I'm a business. I'm strapped for cash and I need it. Or I identify a better investment opportunity and I'm like, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll take the hit to get the cash because I want to put it into the stock market. People need cash, businesses need cash all the time. And so sometimes uh they'll be willing to to settle for less than what they bought it for. Absolutely.
1: But but the opposite is also true. Um if the yield drops to 1%, your bonds is suddenly much more valuable. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so what you're describing is this seesaw
2: or lever, this inverse relationship between the prices that bonds sell at on the resale market and the yields that they, that they generate. So if I have a bond that declines in value, the purchaser of that bond will have a higher yield. So the price goes down, the yield goes up, and then the inverse is true. And I think that's what's so confusing for many people when Mm. you see something like, you know, like Peter, you opened with saying bond yields are rising. That's a good thing, right? Because going up intuitively seems like it must be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, What that actually means is that bonds are becoming less valued. So the price of those bonds that are existing on the market is actually going down because they are less desirable. And the yields are going up as a result.
1: But yields are directly related to inflation because if the U.S. was facing you know, potentially 3% inflation or rising, say inflation was rising from, say, 2 to 4%, they're going to have to raise the yields because otherwise people won't want to buy them.
2: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think you, you're leading us into our next topic there. Well this is but this is like what Greg was saying essentially borrowing from the future now. So you're absolutely right that the expectations of inflation drive the market's uh, valuation of bonds. So if if the market at large expects that there's all this inflation coming, they're not going to settle for a bond yielding a, a measly 1.5%. They're going to expect more. And that's what we saw a few months a few months ago is bond yields on the 10-year at least went from maybe about 0.7% to about one5 1.6%, because the market refused to accept those low yields with the expectation of inflation down the road. Now, what I think you are getting at, Peter, is government manipulation of yields, which is an... an uh, Kind of our, I guess, maybe the next is that something that you'd like to chat about Definitely. The manipulation of the yield curve. Please do, Greg. Greg, do you want to do you want to take a, a stab at that, and, and I can help out.
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the one of the real kind of key pieces of of what economists call monetary policy, and monetary policy just kind of to give the one on one definition is adjusting the money supply. That is creating or destroying money to essentially manipulate the business cycle or the economy in some way, right? So you create money mm-hmm. for, for a certain objective, you destroy it for another. That's, that's essentially what monetary policy is. And manipulating interest rates is a core feature of monetary policy. Um, there's a couple of ways that, that central banks do this and this is what we do in the U.S., and it's, and it's what happens in other countries as well. One of the ways that the Federal Reserve Bank here in the U.S. manipulates interest rates um, is through something called uh, the federal funds rate. So the federal funds rate, and, and Peter, please stop me if we're getting too, too weedy here, but Keep going. The, the federal funds rate is essentially the rate, it's, it's a market-determined rate, but the Fed helps set it, and it's essentially the rate at which banks lend to each other on an overnight basis. So banks are required to hold reserves. This is, this is required by the Federal Reserve Bank. And if a certain bank has excess reserves, they're above the reserve threshold, they can lend those reserves to another bank that's below the threshold so that on a daily basis, each bank is meeting their reserve requirements. So that is, that is a very kind of technical, weedy thing. But the manipulation of this, this thing called the federal funds rate trickles throughout the economy and influences interest rates or yields kind of economy-wide. So if, you know, the Fed manipulates this federal funds rate, let's say they raise it, it's very likely that across the economy, in the treasury market that Willie was speaking about, in terms of mortgage interest rates, car loans, whatever it might be, you're going to see interest rates or yields on those things rise. There's a couple other ways that the Fed does this, but it, it really is, you know, manipulating interest rates is, is one of the most powerful tools that the federal government has to shape what happens in the economy.
1: Okay. Hmm. Have you heard Greg Foss talk about this? I have not. I have. So, my, as I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but he talks about Bitcoin being an insurance against bond yield rates.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would guess my, my, the the first place my head goes is that Bitcoiners, the Bitcoin community talks about Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. If, if the bond market perceives inflation, Yields are going to go up, bond prices are going to go down, so there's less demand, there's less interest in those bonds, they're worth less, essentially, then, you know, Bitcoin could be seen as protection against that. So regardless of what happens with inflation, regardless of what happens with interest rates, the price of Bitcoin is independent of those fluctuations. And so I would guess that that's that's what he's referring to when he talks about Bitcoin as kind of a protection against that.
2: Yeah, my, my understanding of what Greg was, was talking about is that Greg Foss very much sees um, kind of money printing, quote unquote, as, as the knee-jerk response, kind of the d- default response now of government to economic crises. And we're kind of going into this debt spiral that is uh, somewhat inevitable, and that bit, Bitcoin is a hedge against that. And, um, you know, bond yields, how do they play into that? Well, as you said earlier, Peter, bond yields are, are a reflection of what the market writ large expects um, in terms of inflation down the road. And so, you know, if all of this money creation were to, in fact, lead to inflation or the, or the expectation of it, that would manifest in bond yields. And that's what happened in in very, in a very small fashion earlier
1: this year. So Greg, the big question really is then, based on this information uh, and your understanding of yields and inflation, what do you see happening right now? What are the big risks? And uh, kind of what do you see happening over the next uh decade. Because I feel like a crunch is coming. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I feel like it's unavoidable. Because the stimulus packages keep coming, they seem to be getting bigger. And I just feel, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to expect, but I'm certainly fearful of what is coming.
0: Yeah, it's a, you know, I, I guess I would preface my answer just by saying, um, you know, again, that this is a totally unprecedented time. Um, mm-hmm. never before have we turned an economy off and turned it back on again. Um, and I think, a, a, you know, one of the results of that is that we are getting signals right now in the data that are really hard to interpret. Um, you know, it, it's kind of incredible the extent to which the financial and the economics community is missing on some of these numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like two months ago, you know, the, the, the general consensus was that we were going to get a million jobs. We got 250,000 uh, you know the general consensus on on CPI was that we were going to see a, a you know a, a small bump, we got a much bigger bump. So you know I think that that where we 're at right now, we really do just have to have some intellectual humility and recognize that the models that we used to use to predict these things don 't necessarily work right now, um, and that it 's just really hard to see kind of through the noise and, and understand where we 're going so basically,
1: who fucking knows. <laughs> who who knows, who knows?
0: <laughs> that's 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 where I'm at if i had to if I had to give a prediction, my best guess is that we are gonna see inflation increase um I don't think there's any any doubt about it, but I don't think we're gonna see it increase to levels that are devastating to the economy you
1: well, know, it depends 19- where you are depends right. where you are in the world i i i I fear more for smaller states for smaller states smaller countries uh with uh less important less important sovereign currencies on the global stage uh you know we've seen what's happened to lebanon over the last year i'm aware yeah. of higher inflation in turkey etc but uh, pe- people in argentina are continually getting fucked um some of the dollarized nations are slightly more protected but obviously they don't see the benefits from uh the stimulus checks i i, I guess one of the most interesting case studies will be uh El Salvador over the next decade because we know the bill passed yesterday. Bitcoin is legal tender. If you're an economic agent, you legally have to accept Bitcoin. You can convert it back to the dollar. What we're going to see is an injection of Bitcoin capital into that country in a number of ways. Uh, People are going to want to buy it and hold it, maybe spend it. Uh, There's going to be companies in the Bitcoin sector who are going to want to invest in that country. The, the percentage of that fixed supply currency is going to increase in El Salvador over the next decade, whilst we may see different levels of inflation. And I've, uh, the interesting thing will be to see is that will, will the net uh, wealth of, uh, or the net purchasing power of the people of El Salvador increase over that period because there's more Bitcoin there? That's, to me, the, the most interesting country to look at right now with this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm
0: fascinated to see where that goes. And, and in general, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up kind of the perspective of, of the, the, the non-U.S. perspective, and particularly that of smaller countries that don't have, mm. you know, uh, a dollar, a euro, a yen, or a renminbi kind of driving their economy. Um, those countries are, are really struggling right now. Um, for a, for a ton of reasons. I mean, the pandemic has, has had a massive impact on small economies. Uh, those economies were forced to spend, often in an unprecedented way, to combat the worst effects of the pandemic, to put in place you know, health response measures, to make sure small businesses didn't shut down. And you know, for those countries, spending, increasing their debt-to-GDP ratio has an extremely profound impact on the rates at which they borrow in international capital markets. Mm-hmm. So if you're a country that has spent a bunch in the pandemic uh, and you know, the market sees that your debt-to-GDP ratio has gone up, the market sees that as a risk. And they're going to ask for higher yield from you in order to lend you money. And so what happens then is that you get into the situation where they, they have limited fiscal space, they don't have a lot of money to spend, but they also can't borrow because borrowing is becoming really expensive. So it's, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a disastrous situation for a lot of small economies. And I think, I think, Peter, you're right on that the inflation risks there are real, both in terms of domestic inflation, but also if we do see runaway inflation in the United States and the Fed does have to tighten and raise rates, that has really strong impacts on some small economies. Uh, you know, if, 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 if you're an investor and suddenly lending your money to the U.S., Yields at a higher rate than it did six months ago, you're going to be much more attracted to that opportunity. And you're going to need more from from small countries in order to lend your money there. So it even becomes harder for them to borrow. So it's a.
1: Yeah. Tough well, there's situation. been some really snarky comments with regards to El Salvador. Some people pointed out, well, this isn't so important. Look at the size of the uh, the El Salvadorian economy. They're just a small country. It's irrelevant. But actually, I think the complete opposite. When I see what's happened in El Salvador, or or today, a politician in Tonga going laser eyes, or someone in Paraguay, what I actually think, these people are realizing that they can protect themselves, these countries can protect themselves, one, from the risk of their, uh, whether they're a dollarized country and subject to the inflation levels uh, of the US, or they've got their own currency, which is at risk. I see them having the opportunity to increase the the net wealth of the country with a fixed limit asset i actually think the reason we're seeing these smaller countries take this interest in bitcoin is because they have the bigger use case you know they have they have something which is harder for them to protect they they aren't the, they aren't the us dollar they don't have uh they don't have uh, the tools that the federal reserve has so I actually think is a fantastic use case for these countries.
2: Yeah, I think what's really interesting about Bitcoin is ha- how adaptable it is, how flexible it is. Um, you know, in spite of aspiring to be the, the global currency or uh, financial network, in many ways, it's very localized because it adapts itself to local needs. And so my neighbors, for example, are from El Salvador. They might... For all I know, they might be sending remittance payments to family in El Salvador using Bitcoin because it's a hell of a lot easier and cheaper than wiring money over Western Union, right? I'm using Bitcoin much differently from them. Um, you know, I'm using Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation uh, because I think it has a vast asymmetric upside. And so, Bitcoin, I think, has this really unique capacity to kind of uh, mold itself
1: to individual needs. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I'm hedging inflation with Bitcoin, but only at the time where Bitcoin's going up in value and that can be on the short term. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyone who's bought Bitcoin since 64,000 yeah. at 64,000, uh, 64, they haven't hedged inflation in that period because their Bitcoin purchasing power's gone down. But we know we should wait like wait long term. What I actually think about it in, in a different way yesterday, I was like I realized like I am speculating on smaller nations Hedging inflation with Bitcoin—that's what I'm actually speculating on. That rather than rather than mm-hmm. like hedging against inflation in the UK, which whilst growing, I would be very surprised to see inflation above three, four percent. I'm I'm speculating on those countries who may see you know, double-digit inflation and see Bitcoin as an opportunity.
2: Yeah, yeah. We tend to, especially in the US, we really tend to suffer from short-termism. Talking about inflation over the next six months over the next year and to me it's like I don't even care like it doesn't really matter if you're in, if you're buying Bitcoin as an uh, inf- uh, hedge against inflation your time span should be at least a decade should not be mm-hmm. six months and you would ask Greg earlier you know what are what are the big dangers that we foresee in the global dollar driven system for me it's that the U.S. has become, as you said, Peter, somewhat addicted to a combination of fiscal stimulus and quantitative easing, where, where the central bank, the Fed, purchases government debt and just kind of winks and nods and says, let's just pretend it doesn't exist for now, and we trust that you'll pay us back someday. My, my fear is that that someday will never come, um, that the, Fed, the central bank is just effectively monetizing U.S. government debt and any kind of promise that it will be paid back is uh, illusory and if that ever happens then, then we've got some real problems and that's when Bitcoin becomes a real viable solution and a real viable hedge.
1: It's wild times guys. It's so fascinating to watch it happen. The, the fact that we do have this opportunity now with Bitcoin to opt out from all this fuckery, which, I mean, you guys say it's strange times. I mean, someone like myself who struggles to comprehend or understand what's happening in the economy, I just feel pretty safe I have this option with Bitcoin, which is pretty awesome. Um, Okay, is there anything we've not covered yet that you did want to cover as well in this interview? I do think it is
2: important to chat a little bit about what I call the two types of quantitative Mm -hmm. easing. I think it would be helpful to listeners to explain what quantitative easing is um, and isn't, because I know that that term gets thrown around a lot and people might kind of have an intuitive understanding but not really understand what it means in practice. Um, Would that be helpful, Peter? Yeah, please do. So I think it's really helpful to distinguish between the governmental response to the 2008 great, great financial crisis and COVID. Um, because there you see two different varieties or flavors of quantity, quantitative easing at play um, that have different consequences. So in 2008, what started as a housing crisis then devolved into A financial system crisis, a banking system crisis, um, because banks were over leveraged. They had all these crap assets on their balance sheets that they thought were better than they were. And when that happens, banks just essentially freeze up. They stop lending because they lack sufficient reserves. Everything's in chaos. When banks freeze up, so does the economy because of just the role that banks play. And so, the purpose of quantitative easing in 2008 was essentially to just get banks back afloat and lending again. So, what the government did was really twofold. The first thing, it, it actually bought a fair amount of those troubled assets that were on banks' balance sheets from them in exchange for cash um, so that they could lend against those, those, that cash. Uh, the other thing that they did was they purchased treasury bonds from banks. So mm-hmm. banks hold bonds just for the same reason that anyone else would, just to earn a little bit of interest on your idle cash. Um, what the Federal Reserve did, it approached the banks and said, hey, we'll buy these bonds off of you. You'll get cash in return, and you can lend against that cash. Because the banks, they, they were illiquid. They didn't have cash. They couldn't lend. So what all this did was it just kind of freed up the banks to start lending again. It didn't strictly create, it did create new money because the Federal Reserve just did create this cash. This cash that they provided to banks was just zeros that they created on a balance sheet. However, that, that cash that was injected into the banks really just stayed within the banks so that the banks could continue to maintain their pre-existing levels of lending. Right. It didn't make its way into the real economy. And that, that is one explanation for why the economic recovery in 2008 was as slow as it was. It was also because the package that Congress approved of then, the what was it called, the American Reinvestment Act, I think, it was 800 Billion dollars or so, which, if you compare to the COVID package, is is uh, you know small potatoes. So um, that I think that's a helpful way for understanding why creating money out of thin air does not always lead to inflation. I mean, we had a very low inflationary period from two thousand eight until the present day now what's different about covid and i think this is where it gets really interesting is that the federal reserve rather than purchasing existing treasuries off of banks off of banks they're purchasing newly created treasuries or i should say newly issued treasuries that have just recently been issued by the federal government via Fiscal stimulus packages. So when the gov- when the U.S. government, the Congress approved of a three trillion dollar COVID package in February or March, whenever it was, it had to finance uh, that, and so it issued three trillion dollars of debt, which was bought up by banks, and then the Fed actually took it off of off of banks and created federal asset reserves, which is this, you know, like we say, creating money out of thin Mm -hmm. air. And now the difference there is, well, what did the government do with the money? They used that money to inject it directly into the economy by sending people checks, by uh, giving businesses loans, by sending funds to state and local governments for projects on the ground. So in 2008, you had a bunch of money that basically just recapitalized banks, whereas this time around, you have a bunch of money created that at least is designed to go into the real economy. And so that's why I think this time around there's a much stronger case that we will see uh, inflation that we did not see 10 years ago.
1: Okay, right. That's fair. But the the reality is, everything you've both said to me today, the only answer I'm thinking is, well, okay, I'll just buy Bitcoin. (laughs) Bitcoin fixes everything.
2: We'll see. Call me in 20 years.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, stocks aren't doing bad either, I guess, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Stocks aren't doing bad. All right, listen, look, guys. This was really, really useful. Uh, William, I, I particularly appreciate you taking the time and effort. I can tell you uh, you've done a lot of planning to try and help prepare and explain this in a really easy and way for people to understand. So I know there's going to be a lot of appreciation for that. Uh, the audience will love this. Um, you are writing. If people wanted to read some of your work, where should they go? So the writings are on Medium. And I can link that
2: from my Twitter because I don't actually know my Medium handle off the top of my head. But you can find me on Twitter at, um, at Soy Memo Elman S-O-Y-M-E-M-O-E-L-M-A-N. And I'll, I'll uh, make sure to Link my Medium page on my profile there.
1: Well, I'll put it all in the show notes. Uh, and what about you yourself, Greg? Are you interested in me sending a bunch of uh, Bitcoin as your way to harass you and shout at you? I'd love it.
0: Let me let me send you, cool, uh, cool. Peter. I'll send you my Twitter handle as well. Uh, and if you can
1: throw it in there, that'd be great. I'll make sure I do that. Listen, we have survived this with a really horrible delay. I know my engineer Danny is going to do a great job to fix the gaps, but. I I think we've gone back to a two-second delay with every time I ask a question, and you two have adapted to that pretty well, so I appreciate that. I appreciate your patience. Thanks for coming on. I hope we do this again in the future. Excellent. Thanks, Peter. Great coming on. Likewise. Thank you, Peter. Okay, pretty interesting stuff, right? Now, I really enjoyed this one. It was great to hear from a couple of people with a slightly different mindset. William and Greg are not Austrian economists and definitely had a different perspective on Bitcoin and economics to some of the people I've had on the show previously, which makes it interesting. It's good to hear some different voices. Now, I've linked to Will's articles and everything we discuss in the show notes. Please do go and check them out. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach out to me. You can jump in my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email. It's hello at did.com. If you want to support the show, if you listen to the show regularly and you want to help out, please do go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts five stars. If you like it, if you think the show's shit, then leave me one star. I don't mind, but please go and do it. Outside of that, this is going to be my last day in New York, probably heading back to London today. Might have a little detour, but we will find out. Anyway, have a great weekend, and I will see you all next week.